Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 22nd, 2021. It's 9 a.m. in San Francisco in California. It's late afternoon in the United Kingdom. Looking at the news in England, or I should say the United Kingdom today, seems very typical, kind of a, a combination of absurdity and tragedy, which perhaps summarizes uh, everything about the United Kingdom. Uh, Boris Johnson, a quintessentially absurd and tragic figure, is talking up uh, a U.S. trade deal on lamb in, in a, in a post-Brexit world. Um, He's arguing with uh, Macron on the submarine war. Meanwhile, the British press, always obsessed with scandal, has confirmed that Boris has six children. I'm not sure how many mothers, but certainly six children. Um, the British obsession with the royal family continues, although that's not just a British thing, of course. Uh, Prince Andrew apparently has been served with a sexual assault lawsuit in the United States. Um, we've done a lot of shows on the decline, the tragic, absurd decline of the United Kingdom. We had the FT journalist Philip Stevens on the show. He has written a, a, a classic account of post-war uh, British politics of this decline. Uh, we've had Ian Buruma, another good historian on the show about the so-called special relationship between the US and the UK, which uh, Buruma reveals is not so special. Um, and we've had Kahindi Andrews, the author of New Age of Empire, which explains everything in the United Kingdom and indeed in Western Europe and the United States in terms of the consequence of empire. Um, my guest today, like Andrews, is interested in empire, but in a perhaps slightly more empirical or certainly less polemical way. He has a, a new bestseller out. It's out in the US next year, um, but it's doing extremely well in the UK. It's called Empire Land, How Imperialism Has Shaped Modern Britain. Um, his name uh, is uh, uh, Safnan Sagira. Uh, he's talking to me from South End Green in Hampstead in North London. Uh, Safnan, is there something simultaneously absurd and tragic about contemporary Britain? Or am I just being peculiarly British in my obsession <laughs> with tragedy and absurdity? Yeah, I mean, actually, I have a positive conclusion. I think there's a lot of great empire has inadvertently made Britain great in many ways, not least, I would say, in its multiculturalism. The reason I'm here is because a bunch of Brits invaded India, you know, a couple of centuries ago. And I think that's made Britain richer economically and culturally and so on. But of course, the right wing would say, you know, the multiculturalism is nothing to be proud of. So it's basically depends what your politics are, right? But I mean, those headlines are interesting. I mean, Boris Johnson there talking in Frongley, you know, that headline about yeah. Donnay Moir. Classic Boris, right? Classic Boris. Because, you know, I read a biography about him recently and he actually speaks fluent French. But when he speaks <laughs> French in public, he pretends he can't. And that's something I go into my book. This distrust of intellectuals in British public life. I mean, someone like him has to downplay his intelligence. He's a very clever man. But 
You know, one of the down, one of the common criticisms of the head of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, is that he's too smart. They, they call him smarty pants. And one of the criticisms Boris Johnson had of David Cameron was that he was a girly swat, that he was too clever and he tried too hard. And I, I argue in my book that goes way back to empire, because at the height of empire, the people who select officers, selected officers to do the work out there in Africa and India, they had a preference for men who had third class degrees. Uh, from Oxbridge, not first class degrees, because if you had a first class degree, you might think too much about what you were doing. Well, you've got a you first class to... degree, don't you, Sathana? Exactly. I'll be, I'll be terrible as an imperial officer, you see. I, I care too much about appearing smart. And uh, the thing that British life really values is kind of comedy and silliness and people who don't take themselves particularly seriously. And, and this effortlessness, uh, correct me on this, uh, the... the, the um... The quote about the British Empire, which apparently is wrong, is one I always requote when it comes actually to my first marriage. It was by John Robert Seeley, a 19th century Englishman who, who, who famously said or famously missaid, we seem, if as it were, to have conquered half the world in a fit of absence of mind, um, as if the English acquired this huge empire, the biggest empire at that point in world history, uh, by accident. Yeah, that, I mean, this, comment on that quote itself, and of course the ideology behind the quote. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, it's actually a, a particular view of empire that it actually some people argue empire didn't even happen. And British Empire is the British biggest empire in human history. I mean, it covered a quarter of the planet at its height in the early twentieth century. But there are people who argue it never happened, and one of those was was Enoch Powell, who argued that even though he wanted to be Viceroy of India, and it was the great tragedy of his life that he didn't get to be Viceroy, he went on to argue that empire had never really happened because it didn't have a central mission. It didn't have, you know, a constitution. It didn't have a deliberate mission. You could argue that it began, you know, accidentally with a bunch of companies, a bunch of individuals, you know, taking over parts of the Caribbean and America and so on. It didn't really have a central mission. It was only in the 19th century that it was seized upon by politicians like Disraeli, who made Queen Victoria the Empress of India. And it was seized upon as a thing, but arguably for four or five hundred years, it expanded in a pretty chaotic way. Well, that's true, isn't it? I mean, we had uh, Lawrence Burgreen on the show a few months ago. He has a wonderful new book out, In Search of a Kingdom, about Drake and Elizabeth I um, and the foundations or the beginnings of, of, of British Empire. Drake was, of course, a classic pirate, an extremely violent man, heroic, I guess, in a sense. Um, is that the foundations of British Empire, piracy? Um, the foundations are argued about. And this is the thing I didn't really realize until I started looking into empire, is that you can argue anything. You know, People don't agree on when it started. People don't agree on why it started. People don't agree on when it ended. Some people say it hasn't ended. You know, Some people say it ended when Tony Blair gave Hong Kong back to the Chinese. Yeah, but what do you think, Sathnan? I mean, you're obviously not in the Enoch Powell camp. Can we, <laughs> are there particular dates or individuals that we can, we can um, establish as the beginnings, the founders, the pioneers of the British Empire? I think partition, obviously, so the independence of India in 1947. That's the end of empire, but what about the beginning? Me, that's when the empire ended. You know, that's when, because it, it was always India that played a, disproportionate role in the empire. It was a jewel in the crown of empire. And psychologically, 
that is what British people think of, I think, when they think of empire, even though it covered a, a much bigger area. I think the moment it lost control of India, you know, it was it was on its back foot. What about the beginnings, though? Who who is it? Drake? Uh, is it Elizabeth the um, First? Is it some Clive of it, India? Some people say it began with Ulster, right? Some people say it began when fishermen started, you know, looking for cod. Yeah, I get that. But 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 in your view, you've you've written this wonderful mm. book, um, Empire Land. You know as much about this as anyone. Who would you? Who would you see? Where would if you were doing a, a traditional narrative of? The British Empire. Your book isn't. It's a reflection. It's an extremely engaging and creative uh, piece of non uh, of nonfiction. Who would you begin with? Well, I think I'd have to. I'd have to probably put an emphasis on Clive of India. You know what I mean? He was a nasty who, guy, wasn't he? Well, yeah, sociopath, as William Dalrymple calls him. In a, he, he's written an amazing account of the East India Company. One of the reasons I think people in Britain struggle to understand British Empire is the East India Company. It's quite a complicated thing to understand. It was basically a corporation, but he had an army. He had an army twice the size of the British Army at one point. And it's hard to imagine like Google or Amazon doing that, you know, but it was a forerunner of the modern corporation. And kind of went into India in this chaotic way. And, you know, Clive ended up accumulating the equivalent of seven, 700 million pounds in a matter of a few years. And it's hard to get your head around that. I mean, how can that even happen? Uh, explain how, and uh, uh, for people uh, not watching, we have a the Wikipedia page of the East India Company up now. Explain how it worked. Was there a connection between the, the colonial administrator and commercial interests and the crown and the parliament in 19th century England or 18th century England? Um, it was it varied, basically. Essentially, it, initially it was, you know, just a private company, but it had a charter given by the state. But there were so many scandals involving the East India Company. And that's the thing to remember, that even during its lifetime, the East India Company was wildly unpopular. Clive of India was wildly unpopular you know he, he was said to have killed himself and he was buried in an unmarked grave you know and uh his successor warren hastings you know was also wildly unpopular and in the end because of all the scandals that the east india company got involved with the british state took over and that's where i guess empire became more formal in india um but that's a it's quite a strange process and uh a difficult thing to get your head around you said, Sathan, earlier that the empire sort of created the cult of the, um, of the, of the uncaring aristocrat, the, um, the cult of uh, 18th or 19th century Boris Johnson-style figures. Um, but some of Britain's smartest people, um, for better or worse, were involved with the, uh, with the East India Company. John Stuart Mill, the father of liberalism, the father in some ways of modern feminism, he was bound up in the East India Company. And I'm curious, um, I've always wondered about someone like Mill, who, of course, in a moral sense and in a philosophical sense is iconic. How much is a man like Mill's association with the East India Company, how much should it question the rest of his political views? Well, I, I would say... It shouldn't. I mean, the thing is about empire, British empire, it, it's in every aspect of British life. You know, you can't isolate it and say, oh, 
they were involved with the East India Company. They must be terrible. The East India Company issued shares, so thousands of people had stakes in it. You know? Yeah, but Mill was one of the, the the guys who ran it. I mean, he wasn't just a, a shareholder. Yeah, but also, I mean... Did he know was, what he was doing? I mean, in the 19th century, given how angry Mill was about the uh, subjugation of women, mm. given how Mill wrote so persuasively about individual rights, isn't it profoundly hypocritical and contradictory that he should be involved in an organization like the East India Company? Things were complicated, right? But I mean, there's so many profound co contradictions when you, when you talk about empire. I mean, look at Gladstone, right? Uh, massively anti-imperial, hated jingoism, hated the empire. But This was the 19th century 19th Prime Minister, century, William Gladstone. Yeah, railed against empire and jingoism. But when he, one of the times he was Prime Minister, he seized Egypt. You know, what's that about? You know, so people were really, the history was really complicated then. And you can't be black or white about it. I mean, one of the things I was... Well, you could be black or white. Isn't that your point, that, that the empire is based on racism, essentially? No, no, my, that's my point, is that it's too complicated to come to an overall conclusion that it was good or bad, which is the why it was, we are so dysfunctional when we talk about empire in this country. We're talking about four or 500 years of history. A lot of good things happened. A lot of terrible things happened. There were massacres, genocides. You can't give it a five-star rating like a like a book you bought on Amazon, <laughs> you know? It's, but that's the problem. People always do. So what you do know? you make of someone like Kehinde uh, Andrews? I'm sure you know him. I, I was yeah, I've, I've particularly impressed. He's an incredibly articulate and persuasive figure. What, what do you make of a take like Andrews on empire and colonialism? You know what? I respect um, Kehinde. I've done events with him. I've read his book. I think it's an important argument. I'm glad it's getting aired. But in general, I have not got a huge amount of time for people who spend all their time saying empire was entirely evil. And equally, I don't have much time for people who spend all their time saying empire was brilliant and we should have pride in it. Yeah. Uh, government, government go around saying. I think the only logical thing to say is that it was complicated. And the moment you say it's complicated, you can start having sane conversations about empire. But isn't that sometimes a sort of a way of apologizing for empire? We had Niall Ferguson on the show recently. I think he's an excellent historian, although from a political point of view, I don't always agree with what he said. He, of course, wrote a famous book, essentially in defense of empire, or the British empire, at least. What do you make of people like Ferguson? Well, you know what? Yeah, he he goes into that balance sheet view of you know arguing about whether empire was overall good or bad, but I've got a bit of time for Nile in in the sense that I think his work has been characterized unfairly. You know, if you read his book, you know he doesn't deny the Tasmanian genocide. He doesn't deny racism. He doesn't deny Jalin Wallabog. He's actually you can feel the outrage about these singular events. So when he actually tells the story of empire, I think he's fairly trustworthy. It's just that he decides to have an overall conclusion, which has always been the problem with empire. Because what you do then is you, you turn the discussion of empire into a reconstruction of empire, where you've got the descendants of the colonized, people like me, arguing with the descendants of the colonizers and, and kind of repeating the kind of tragedy of empire, when actually all we should try to do is try to understand it. Right. And then that's what you, you've done so um, intelligently and um, in such an enjoyable way in, in Empire Land. You've avoided this third rail. But do you think you could do it because you're of Sikh descendants? You grew up in Wolverhampton. 
Uh, do you think a, a white man in particular could have written this kind of book, Empire Land, and got away with it? I think there is something about being a Sikh that allows you to be, you know, trusted a bit in the sense that the Sikhs took the side of the British, right? You know, we we took the side of the British at the mutiny of 1857. Yeah, t- tell us a little bit about the Sikhs, because not everyone watching this um, uh, South Nan will even know what or who Sikhs are. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're a tiny community in uh, India. I guess we're about two. We were during empire around 2% of the population. But we made up a disproportionate amount of the British Indian Army, um, have with a history of fighting, fought in both world wars for the British, uh, took the side of the British in uh, the Indian mutiny when loads of Indians rebelled against the British. So there's always been a strong loyalty to the British uh, Army. Do some Indians see empire. you? Do some people in South South Asia see you as as, as quislings, as as collaborators with the sure. British? I mean, yeah, I'm sure they do. But, I mean, there's different kinds of collaborators, aren't they? When it came to divide and rule, I mean, I guess we did the, uh, you know, the the military work, but then there were communities who did the banking and did the, you know, and those people I think are probably even even more kind of <laughs> distrusted. But, yeah, we occupy a strange role because loads of Sikhs also fought against British Empire. You know, there was a something called the Garda movement in India, where Sikhs fought against uh, British Empire. So we have a complicated uh, kind of relationship with empire, but it enables me to go into it without having massively strong feelings either way. I didn't go into empire thinking, or writing about it, thinking I must hate it. I didn't think I go into it thinking I would. I need to love this either. Right. Uh, writing about uh, reading reading your book, um, Sathnan. It occurred to me that most of the radical British historiography of thinking is focused on Europe. Um, uh, Eric Hobsbawm, uh, of course, the most famous British 20th century historian. E.P. Thompson, The Making of the English Working Class. How does the left in general come out of uh, figures like Hobsbawm and Thompson? How do they... How do they seem to you in terms of their um, critique of empire? It didn't seem as if they were as focused on the problems, the crimes of empire as they might. They were more focused on the creation of the working class and, of course, of the politics of Europe. Yeah, I, I would actually point to George Orwell because actually... Right, George right, Orwell. right. And I got Orwell, of course. We can't talk about this mm. without uh, talking about Orwell and, in particular, his... Uh, Shooting an elephant, an iconic essay on what it felt like to be a colonialist. Yeah, I mean, he, I guess he's the man who comes to mind. He's he lived in empire. I think he worked as an officer in Burma, and wrote incredible stuff ab- about the injustices of empire. And that continues. I mean, we had uh, Jeremy Corbyn um, a few years ago saying we need to teach we need to teach empire because we need to teach kids about you know the crimes of empire, which I would say goes back into the balance sheet view and doesn't get us anywhere but i do think it's a profound british tradition to oppose empire that's what we forget you know throughout even at the time even when there was empire yeah even at the time people i mean gladstone i've mentioned already even queen victoria at times would say you know what that's excessive she would speak out in defense of her subjects and throughout empire there are people railing against it they probably didn't get the kind of publicity of the imperialists, but they always was. There always was. Well, there's a lot of controversy now about 
British Empire, particularly their involvement in the slave trade. Um, yesterday, I interviewed Connor Town O'Neill, who's written an interesting new book, Down Along with That Devil's Bones, about the bringing down of Confederate statues in the American South. The British are going through the same thing. Uh, the Edward Colston statue in Bristol was recently pulled down as a consequence of Black Lives Matter. How has Black Lives Matter generally affected Britain's sense of guilt about empire and particularly racism and slavery? Quite intensely, actually. I'm writing the introduction to the American edition for Empire Land. And you know what? I think there were parallel responses. Black Lives Matter was a massive thing over here. I think the fact that we were in lockdown at the time focused people's minds because everyone was watching, you know, this video of this poor guy being killed by a police officer. And it, 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 it resulted in intense conversations about colonialism. And but when it comes to statues, I can I don't particularly care about statues. They're just street furniture. I don't think we notice them most of the time. But the conversations we've had about statues in Britain, about Winston Churchill's statue, um, about Colston's statue, have been fascinating. They've been the first time I think this country has ever really talked about colonialism in, in, in my lifetime. I don't remember there being very much interest. And actually, it probably explains why so many people are reading my book. A lot of people are reading your book, and a lot more will read the book, Sathnam, when it comes out in the US next year. Um, what do you think Americans can learn about themselves from your book, and particularly Actually, their history of slavery and racism in the South? You know what? It's a book people could, Americans read and feel better about themselves because... Oh, we don't know, want that, Sathnam. <laughs> I only like books that make Americans feel bad about themselves. Because I, I feel that in, in Britain, we look down on America when it comes to race. I mean, we, we look at them and think, oh, God, at least we're not that, that screwed up about race. But I think over here, we don't even acknowledge racism as a problem. You know, whenever there's a racist scandal, which happens every two weeks, and I know because my phone goes off and it's the BBC asking me to comment on it. Um, Why'd they ask always, you? It always comes down to the question, does racism exist in Britain? I mean, <laughs> of course it exists. We had a, you know, we ran the biggest empire in human history, which was based for at least a century on white supremacist principles. Of course, of course we have racism, but I feel that in America, there's more acknowledgement of it than over here. Do you, would you agree with that? Or am I wrong? Well, I probably become too American in the sense that I, I think that racism is less overt and less central to the the, the British narrative than, than in the US. I think class and empire are central to the UK. Uh, but I obviously agree that racism and empire are intimately bound up with one another. How, yeah. in, in terms of racism and empire, you've noted that the Sikhs uh, were sort of the middlemen, if you like, in the history of the British Empire, especially in India. How did the British justify that given their racism, given the fact that Sikhs obviously aren't white? Well, there were all sorts of weird racial science happening in the 19th century. There was actually an, a theory about Aries, Arianism. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yeah, Arianism. Arianism, um, which was popular in the 19th century, which had North Indians, people from the north of India, Sikhs, my parents, yeah. were included, were seen as part of the white race. So we were almost seen as part of the brotherhood. And it was the darkest skinned people in the south of India. But even then, they were different. They didn't really treat us as equals. But they fetishized and uh, Sikhs in this absurd way, and and even wrote published handbooks explaining why we had the right physique to be white, 
uh, fighters and warriors, why our eyes were, you know, spaced just the right amount that made us good in on the battlefield. But they did this with loads of races. They did it with the Highlanders. They did it with the Gurkhas. Yeah. And it was all part of this weird 19th century obsession with race. Your book, uh, Empire Land, has, has, has brought the racists out of the woodwork. Um, <laughs> I know you've, you've, you've experienced a great deal of racist commentary on social media in particular. Um, how has the book generally been received in the UK? Uh, are, are you seen as a, a critic of the empire, even though in reality I don't think you are? Yeah, I think I think I'm very middle of the. I'm, I'm I'm I feel very neutral. But yeah, I've been getting a load of racist abuse, almost entirely from people who haven't read the book. But there's been surprise, an incredible surprise. response from. They um, probably can't of, read. Some of these people probably not only have not read your book, they can't read, right? Because they, they can just about post a message on Twitter. But yeah, I mean, I've been actually knocked out by how many right wing, well, conservative politicians have reviewed it and well, and I couldn't really make sense of why they were so enthusiastic about it. And I think I think it's because they've realized their party has been hijacked by English nationalists mounting a culture war about empire. And they want to be equipped. They want to be able to argue their way and, and kind of get their party back. So I think there's quite a lot of interest on the conservative side. But I think you can be conservative, you can be socialist, and you can still agree with what I say, which is that we need to understand empire. We don't need to see it as a stick to beat ourselves up with. It's not possible, of course, to talk about the UK without bringing up Brexit. We've had a number of shows touching on Brexit. We had uh, David Goodhart, I'm sure you know him, talking about meritocracy, the crisis in Britain and, 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 and Brexit. Um, we had the historian David Egerton arguing that uh, Brexit was not a necessary crisis. Um, we even had a journalist, uh, Peter Gumbel, arguing that Germany has replaced Britain as the sort of beacon of freedom. How does Brexit fit into your narrative in Empire Land? Was it inevitable because of our obsession with, or your obsession with empire? Uh, yes, I mean I wanted to avoid it because Brexit's the most boring subject in Britain at the moment. I agree. Right? I couldn't we had agree years more. of it, but I, I couldn't avoid it because I think I think people voted for Brexit for all sorts of reasons. But one of the major reasons was nostalgia for empire because basically, you know, we ran a quarter of the planet. We dictated the rules for a significant part of the planet and then suddenly we're taking rules from the European Union and it just never sat well with us. I think we were never we, we never were comfortable being part of this club and when you look at the ways Brexiteers talk about Brexit they often use the language of colonialism. They talk about Independence Day, they talk about being colonized by the EU. I mean Nigel Farage on the, on the, for his victory speech on, on Brexit Day said you know this was Independence Day and we'd managed to achieve it without a single shot being fired. And that is the language of colonialism. And I think that ultimately is why Brexit happened, because we never, you know, we kind of had this nostalgia for the time where we were in charge. And that delusional sense of, of empire continues. I mean, you only have to look at the headlines. Uh, lots of stuff about the British um, retreat from Afghanistan as, uh, as, the, as the second power alongside the Americans. Uh, later today, in fact, I'm interviewing uh, uh, a New Zealand journalist, Stephen Davis, Flight 149, about the British-American conspiracy uh, over Iraq associated with uh, the hijacking of a flight. Is that 
nostalgia, that absurd nostalgia for empire still dominating British foreign policy in obsessions with Afghanistan and, 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 and fighting above one's weight. Totally. I mean, Afghanistan is an area that the British Empire went into disastrously in the 19th century and Iraq, too. Um, and you see in the headlines that you showed at the beginning of this, I mean, this obsession with a special relationship, you know, and we have a constant neurosis about the fact that we're no longer a superpower. We obsess about the fact that we want to be seen on equal terms with America. Why are we getting involved with all these things when we're such a small nation? It's all about the fact that once we were the superpower, once upon a time, we sorted out other people's problems and we still act like that even now. Uh, we also had uh, David Stasevage on the show as a historian of democracy. He's written an interesting book, The Decline and Rise of Democracy, in which he argues that the foundations of democracy probably can't be traced back to the Athenians, and rather we need to look to indigenous societies in North America and indeed in Asia. What's your sense from empire land in terms of the way in which the emergence of British democracy was shaped and perhaps corrupted by empire? Gosh, you know, I probably don't know enough about that. Um, democracy, of course, is one of the things that uh, people like Niall Ferguson believes that we gave to places like India and America. Yeah, but and Stasavaj would argue that actually the reverse was true, that we, we learned about democracy from indigenous societies and that's been written over in a, in a classically sort of colonial narrative. Yeah, and it's part of this obsession with always trying to think of the positive things. And uh, when I look at India, the thing I think about with the nation of British Empire, and not only the fact that the railways weren't built as a benevolent act, is what the British did with the caste system, in that they took the caste system, which existed, and intensified the divides between the caste system. And now India functions, it uses those divisions to allocate jobs. And it, it just goes to show you that the... The modern legacies of empire aren't just things like democracy and the English language. They're, some of them are quite dark. We also had your fellow journalist, I'm sure you know his work, Adrian Waldridge from The Economist. He has a new book out, The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. Adrian is nostalgic for the post-war age where he believes uh, there was a, a kind of meritocratic infrastructure to the UK, I guess the kind of infrastructure that enabled you to go from Wolverhampton to Cambridge to The Times to becoming an internationally known journalist. Um, is the cure for this obsession with empire, this absurd Boris Johnson love of a past that didn't really exist, is the cure a genuine meritocracy, Sathna? Well, I don't know how you go about to <laughs> install a genuine meritocracy. I think the cure is to teach about empire. I mean, we've had two massive racist scandals in the in recent history in Britain, the Stephen Lawrence murder yeah. and the Windrush um, controversy. Both reports, both the Stephen Lawrence inquiry and the Windrush inquiry said we need to teach the history of empire to our kids. You know, we need to tell the kids in Britain need to leave school knowing that we're a multicultural society because we had a multicultural empire. And yet still, we don't really teach empire properly in this country, you know, and you have this absurd situation where someone like Tony Blair can go to Hong Kong and he wrote, wrote in his biography that he didn't know why he didn't understand the history of why we ended up with Hong Kong. You know, <laughs> that's the level of the ignorance. And I think it could, 
not knowing this and not it not being um, instilled in our children is is a large cause for our dysfunction as a nation i think well one way to fix that is to read uh, sathanand sagira's uh, new book empire land um how imperialism has shaped modern uh britain it's been a bestseller uh enormously acclaimed by reviewers in the uk it's out in the us next uh year sathanand congratulations on the book you're in Hampstead, North London at the moment. In addition to Empire Land, what else should people be reading in these strange times? You know what? I would recommend I would recommend William Dalrymple's book um, on the East India Company, The Anarchy. It was yeah. I need that, to get him on the show actually. Oh, you should, mate. He, he really makes sense of the the most complicated period of British history, and uh, I can also, ask him my mill question as well about. Uh, uh, whether John Stuart Mill's moral philosophy was compromised by his involvement with the East India Company. Yeah, I think he'll know more. He'll know more than me. And also, he's he's very he just he doesn't hold back when it comes to criticizing the people who were involved. You know. Well, Sathman Segura, it's a real honor to have you on the show. We'll have to get you back on. I think next year when the book comes out in the U.S. and we can talk again about the book. Uh, and more about the absurdity and comedy and tragedy of politics in modern Britain. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.